Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Nafley. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I am super excited today to be joined by Andy Kirk. Andy, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Thank you, Cole. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I actually, it's hard to believe that we haven't sat down and done this already at this point. Um, So I'm glad we're getting around to it. So Andy is, uh, I've been saying data visualization guru in our advertising because you do training, you do research, you've written books, you have a fantastic website at visualizingdata.com. And I'll let you introduce yourself more fully momentarily. Uh, But before we do, I wanted to share a fun anecdote or what I think is a fun anecdote because it's (laughs) A memory that I go back to, I feel like regularly these days in the midst of COVID lockup, which is February in London, in a pub, having a pint and some food with Andy Kirk and David McCandless. And it was such a fun evening uh, after we yeah. spoken at the Date of His Live conference. I think that was my last international travel. Actually, it was my last international travel before all of this craziness. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about how the craziness has impacted some of our work, some of your work. And I have some specific topics I want to make sure mm. we cover. We also have people joining live. We have a number of people viewing our live discussion. And so we'll cover a couple of topics, but then I want to make sure we leave a lot of time for the folks who are joining to ask their questions. Of course. Yeah, sure. So that was too much of me talking already. I want to hear you talk. I think a lot of people listening and watching are probably already familiar with you and your work. But for those who may not be, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about how you got to what you're doing and about what you focus on today? Yeah, sure. So I am a Dittivis freelancer. Um, I never personally use the word guru. I'll let others judge that or not. Um, But yeah, I've been freelancing for just over 10 years now. And yeah, I, I I get involved in lots of different things simply because I need to, to to sustain my own energy and enthusiasm. But yeah, training courses, teaching academically, book writing, projects, design, consultancy, which I really enjoy, website, podcasts. So I, I, I do try and keep a lot of things spinning, but a lot of these things do influence each other, you know, so the consultancy experiences then feed back into my training courses and then that feeds into the book. And so all these things, you know, kind of coalesce around the same motivation, which is, you know, I'm sure something that you you would share with me, Cole, that I'm trying to give people the knowledge and the expertise that I've to a certain degree self-developed over the over the last decade and and give people that leg up into this subject that is in, in many respects, it is an overwhelming prospect simply because of the amount of different things that you need to, in theory, master to be good at this, whether it's kind of creative work, whether it's the technology, whether it's the data and the journalism aspects. But it's something that we've all got at least a starting position of strength with in one of these different hats. And it's a subject that I think we can all do. We can all attain. There should be no barrier to this subject. I think the biggest 
the biggest thing that I often try and impart to people is that the the most important characteristic that you can possess is curiosity. You know, I, I actually think that even though my book's called Data Driven Design, it's curiosity comes even before data. You know, we don't capture or create data without having that initial wondering about something, that curiosity, that sense of, I wonder how that's doing. I wonder what's going on down there. So, you know, I'm just trying to help others get into this world. And, you know, thankfully I can do it in a way that allows me to be a, a freelance professional and, you know, be my own boss and something that I celebrate every day. One of the things that strikes me from that, you talk about how today, you know, people have to learn a lot about different things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that strikes me is there's so much more information out there, right? If you go back a decade when you were starting to get interested in this or when I was starting to get interested in this, there wasn't this plethora of resources. And so in some ways it was maybe easier to navigate because of that. But yeah. I'm curious, and I'm sure, you know, the curiosity you talk about is part of what leads into this, but what led you down the path to do this in the first place? Well, I guess, I mean, I mean not to make it too long an origin story, because we've only got 40 minutes or so, but when I was a kid, that's where I'm starting. When I was a kid, I was really into art and maths. So I wanted to pursue a pathway into architecture, but I was, no. For different reasons, that was not my game. Um, and then when I went know, to university, when we were at that pub in London, I think we talked more there than we had previously and realized our paths yeah. were quite similar in all these different yes, ways. Absolutely. I went and on an I, architecture path as well. <laughs> right. And, and actually when, when you two do chat to people, there's, there's lots of, let's say failed architects who are now in this, uh, in this <laughs> world. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I, I always had that, that natural tendency towards numbers and statistics, but also, a certain eye for creativity. Um, but it wasn't really until about 2007 when I was working as an analyst at a university. And so my day job was presenting data and charts and graphics, but not with any real robust, you know, approach or understanding of what I was doing, just making things that look nice to me. Um, I found the subject on the web and I found Stephen Few and I found Tufty. You know, the, the, the entry points for most of us converge around at least sort of one or two of those people. Now, as you said, at the time, there was very little, really, relatively, let's say, in terms of um, text, in terms of websites. And you've it, it did feel to me like in those days, you could know about every single new thing that was made or written about from month to month. Now, some people may be familiar with my monthly best of website uh sorry web postings now in those days i knew everything that was new that was good and it was in that list and these days it's now um an editorial judgment about what to put in and i think that's Which perhaps super helpful by the way <laughs> oh, thank you i mean it's a it's a different challenge now and it does take a long time to do that and i think going back to your point i, I suppose in many respects our roles now are to be custodians or uh, chaperones or concierge if you want a concierge role to to guide people, um, to give people a roadmap that often is, yes, clearly it's us teaching and imparting what we've learned, but as much as anything, it's giving them uh, a route map to then find their own. And I guess it's it's that dis distinction between learning and teaching, which I think is important. You know, a lot of this stuff can be learned by oneself, but you need a framework. You need to know how it all fits together, which is hopefully, I guess, what we try to, to do for our respective activities. 
when try to speed up that process, right? That Accelerate it, yeah. For definitely. me, it took what felt like a long time and continues to. Yeah. Know. So, one of the reasons I reached out for this, or when the idea came to mind, is because I've been doing some work around. Uh, little things, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that when we make a graph, we make a ton of different decisions, right? Some of those are made for us by our tools. Some we choose to undo, some we mm -hmm. don't. And it's really all these little tiny decisions, each of which on their own, relatively minor, but that come together to make the experience of our graph, which can work yeah. well or can work not so well and all sorts of different flavors in between. But as I was thinking about this, one of the things that came to mind was one of the series that you do, the little visualization design. And I thought, okay, I'll do a podcast. I can, I can talk about that. I can talk about some other things. And I thought, well, no, it's much better to have Andy talk about the series than me talk about it. So can you tell us a little bit about this series for those who may not yeah, be Yeah, sure. And, you know, I, I completely share the same view that, you know, we as visualization creators are responsible for every pixel that's on that screen and every pixel on that screen requires decision making. Um, I, I mean, one of the, the little tasks that I've done in the past, I'm sorry to overuse the word little, but one of the tasks I've done in the past in, um, in my training course is is to pick something like a, I don't know, like an axis line and to get people to write down all the different things they might have to decide about that line. How thick is it? How much of the space on the page does it occupy? What range of values will go on that line? What color will it be? How prominent will it be compared to other features? And when you start to list all these things that this line embodies in terms of decision-making, you realize that actually visualization is a game of decisions. Yes. Uh, and so what I always try and uh, reduce that to us in a sense is to say, to make good decisions, you need to be aware of all your options, all the things that you could do, but then be aware of the things that influence what you do do, mm -hmm. choice making. Um, and a lot of those things that might influence what you do choose to do, a lot of them are editorial judgments. They are things that don't have a nice, neat, right or wrong binary rule book attached to them. Plenty of things do, clearly. And so we don't want to make decisions that are based on pure randomness. We want to have a sense that there's a, a, a rationale behind it. And so the, the, the series, the Little Viz series, on one level is to try and make people aware and appreciate just how many little decisions there are to face, but also how astute little decisions can go a long way to making a big difference to a, an individual piece being received as something that's okay or fantastic. Um, and that was, that was the motivation for it. The, the other side note to this is at the time of doing it, I was trying to find um, a blog post series that was quick, <laughs> that was quick to write and to produce and churn out because anyone who writes uh, an article for a blog post knows just, just how much time it actually takes to write these things or to publish these things. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted something that would be quite speedy. And I, and I did feel that this is something I could just pick whatever I saw that day and think, right, well, that's a good little thing. Right. Let's just talk about that one thing, profile it, why it's good, move on to the next episode. Well, and you're very clear, right, in the description about it, that there are other things we could talk about related to this, but I'm just going to focus on this one Correct. little thing. <laughs> Correct. And, and generally speaking, it's also uh, a positive one thing. Initially, I, I sort of started off thinking, should I profile one bad thing, one good thing? But 
it's easy for us, and I, and I do fall into this trap as well. It's easy for us to focus on negative things. You know, here's a look at this terrible chart, this terrible thing. I do get the, the you know the, the benefit of seeing what's wrong with things, but I think this is more a celebratory series, hopefully, about the you know the good things that we can aspire towards rather than avoid. Well, and going back to this idea of having people be really cognizant about the decisions they're making and what's influencing those, right? You're surfacing things now mm. that are things that people could model after and Correct. use to influence some of those decisions. That's right. Yeah. But what are, can you give us a sampling of what are, what were some of your favorites or uh, just to give sense, folks a sense yeah. of what sort of things you focus on there? I mean, I'm just I'm going to pick three, for example. So um, axis lines we just talked about. Um, there's yeah. a beautiful treatment. Um, now, I'm going to forget who did these, so I'll try not to remember. We can um, link to all of them. I'll find them and yeah. we'll link to them in the show notes. So one example was, you know, we, we often talk about the don't use the zero baseline for bar charts. Sorry, always use the zero baseline for bar charts. <laughs> um, but some of the confusion that arises around the zero baseline need for line charts. Well, one thing that you can do to that is, um, fade out the axis line so it becomes less visible mm -hmm. so that you don't imply that this is reaching down to zero. So rather than a hard stop, this sort of faded effect works really well um, and works, I think, more elegantly than the classic kind of cut-off uh, yep. axe chopping line. So that was one nice treatment. Another one was the use of um, when you've got a colour legend, rather than having necessarily a separate legend, is there a way to explain the color associations with the introductory text? Yep. So that when you mention that thing, that category, that feature, you color code that text and it acts as a one-stop shop for explaining the color associations, but also setting up the background to the work. I think it's a really nice, neat way. Um, the third one is just a, a very simple feature, but the use of a reset button. So sometimes when we have interactive features where we can choose to manipulate different parameters or selections, filters, ranges, the idea that you can then just quickly reset it to the you know the factory settings for which there would have been a reason for those initial settings can be a, ne a neglected feature, but I think is once again a nice little. It's a, it's about caring about the person ultimately, about the user, the viewer. And thinking, what are the things that this person would need to do? Ah, a reset and start again. Let's do that once rather than having to reset all these arrows and these sliders. So, uh, you know, it's it's those little flourishes that um, it's very easy to not find the time to do because we are very busy people and these things always risk being endless creative processes. But I think if you can, you know, if you can learn from and be inspired by what other, others are doing out there, you can make that, that big difference, I think. Uh, Lucas is asking, is there an example of this on Andy's site, somewhere to help visualize what he's talking about? So we'll certainly link to the three, Andy, that you mentioned in the show notes. But you recently pulled all these together into a single page, right? Yeah, there's a single page. I think there's about 72 postings. I mean, I, I have actually dropped off. I need to pick up the, the momentum again. But but yeah, they're, they're in there. So there's, there's they're all there. And there's all very clear in each case which uh, what features has been highlighted. 
Awesome. And we'll include that in the show notes as well. As I was going through them, a couple that stuck out to me, one was there was one from the Washington Post that you highlighted where it was uh, it was like three panels of slope graphs. Mm-hmm. And the yes. point was that if they put it all into a single slope graph, you wouldn't have been able to see what was going on. But by breaking it yeah. in, they were able to have different minimums and maximums and, and really tell this sort of piecewise story. And they had nice structures of titles above it to help facilitate that. Yeah. Well. And I love containers. I love the idea that you, you don't try and um, permanently go for this continuous single construct and then you break things down and each one offers a different window into that topic, but still within the logic of a sequence of a year ago, a month ago, last week, for example. Yeah. And I like this phrasing containers because I I always think of it as the negative space of like, how do you make the white space in between or do these things? But container makes it feel more like a, I don't know, like a a hole uh, in a useful way. And it gives it a home as well. Mm -hmm. What about, so when it comes to all of these little sorts of decisions, I think I may know where where you might go with this, but I'm going to put it out there because I think it's an interesting question of... So when we look at a graph or when we're making a graph and we make all these different design decisions, right? you come back to your axis of you know, yeah. how thick is it? How far from the data is it? What's the range? What are the pieces of that thought process that can be taught? And are there pieces that are people are just naturally inclined to mm. see differently or act differently? It's a really great question. Like the whole nature, nurture sort of question. I think there is... Um... There is a certain innate talent that some people have, and I and I would never put myself in that bracket. You know, there, there are some people who think, "How on earth did you think to do that thing? That's so clever, so cool." Um, I think really practice is is everything. You know, and I know this is something that you would support anyway. But I think the repetition of exposure to these challenges, the exposure to what others are doing out there to learn from, is is you know is perhaps the most crucial aspect of it. I think with regards to teaching. Um, I mean, what I try to do is is not teach people tips, tactics, tricks necessarily, although that's part of it. It's to give them a mental framework to be able to cope with whatever challenge they face and to give them pointers, you know, perhaps more nuanced pointers that, than they are comfortable with to say, in this situation, have a think about this. And, and don't so much concern yourself with, should this be black or gray, but concern mm-hmm. yourself with, you know, as I said before, how prominent should this be compared to other features? Does it need to be shouting or can it be quite quiet in the background but still be visible enough so that it's there when you want it? So it's to try and, I guess, educate people in a way that is a more survivable knowledge base because it's more fluid and adaptable but equally is not necessarily easy and comfortable to pick up and run with straight away, which is why the practice part kicks in. And that's one of the tensions that I experience a lot with folks who are just getting into the space or wanting to learn is, especially early on, there's a desire to have a set of rules to use, uh, which I think is probably useful in some regards to, to learn some guidelines like that at the onset. But then understanding that 
there aren't rules, right? And that's, that's actually part of what makes this space so much fun is that it can be a little different each time or it can be a little differently done by each person. And yeah. you know, as, as I'm putting together content for the live event that we have coming up later this month, it's this idea that you know, I'm going to show you some viewers some little things, but these are not the right things, right? Mm. You can do these in different ways and come up with a, an equally great result. It's being conscious about all the little decisions you're making and coming back to what you said earlier about really thinking about the person who's on the other side of it and their experience and trying to make that feel good. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. I think there's there is a there's a, there's a desire when you first get into this to to have that that infrastructure of rules and guidelines and always do this and never do that and um you know, some something that's perhaps a reductive view of this subject that is usefully reductive because that's what you need when you start anything. Uh, you know, as you would do when you're learning, uh, you know, a piano, you learn to do scales or arpeggios and you, you learn the sort of almost like the muscle memory of doing certain things, but then you need that extra confidence to break the rules. I mean, you know, lots of people say, learn the rules first to then know how to break the rules. And I think that's, that's something that um, I, I think more and more people become or are becoming appreciative of, you know, I, I think going again, if we look back over the last 10 years and it's not to pick on these authors in a negative sense, but perhaps the, the rules that we, we did learn from Stephen Few and, and Tufty gave us quite binary choices and always yeah. do this, never do that. And I think we need that, but then perhaps as people get more exposed to challenges that whereby the, that approach does not have a, a reliably satisfactory outcome all the time, yeah. that's when you think, right, hang on, how do I now, battle this thing and that's when you become i guess more confident to to break the rules and to become more liberated in the way that we tackle things and i think there's certainly over the last few years you know perhaps a greater appreciation for techniques that are sketchy and more fluid and less about precision and more about you know feeling things and you only get there through initially doing the bar charts you know going yeah. through the legwork of the mob mechanical processes but the key thing is we need all that stuff. And most of our work is still in that realm of the rights and wrongs. It's just perhaps for the more, the more sophisticated adaptability to, to dealing with different challenges, you need to kind of go beyond that. Are there things as you, as you teach people the, the process, right? And the thinking, mm. are there certain things you find yourself always coming back to? So for, for example, I'm always coming back to audience, right? Think about <laughs> your audience. If you have a question you can't answer, think about your audience and what will work for them. And yeah. that may lead you in a path. Are there certain things you find yourself coming back to? When yeah, I, I think it is that, Cole. And, you know, I don't think there's any, any accident in that because I think it's probably something that I'm sure you're, you're the same that, I'm actively promoting, keep going back to the audience, keep going back to the audience. And it becomes a boring thing to keep reciting. But ultimately, if if we are talking about data viz in the realm of it being a communication method and not just, you know, for exploratory analysis for oneself to get familiar with data, you're you're only doing this thing to, to serve that audience. And and so if you don't do that thinking, it's not just that you're not going to fail the re eventual recipient, but actually you're making your life harder. Because if you do take time and care to think, okay, what's what's this person's motivation? Um, what are the questions they want answers to? What are, what's their what's the setting when they encounter this work? Is it about rapidity and immediacy, or is it about a more prolonged and deeper engagement with the subject? If you don't do that thinking, you're just giving yourself more ambiguity. 
uh, and more things that come down to, well, okay, let's do that. And that's not good enough for, for anybody in this, in, this, uh, in this kind of equation, really. Hi, everyone. Cole here. I'll be delving further into the topic of the many little decisions we make when visualizing data in our upcoming live event on June 30th, 2020. Simply sign up for premium membership in the Storytelling with Data community, which will give you access to this and other virtual events. You can also ask me your questions, data storyteller office hours to chat with and get feedback from the team, and our growing library of video learning. Info on all of this can be found at community.storytellingwithdata.com slash premium. So John asked a question. This was a little bit back when you were talking about the design decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he says, and welcome, John. Uh, He's tuning in from New Zealand, where I think it is probably so crazy early in the morning. So thanks for getting (laughs) up early, John. Uh, He says, so artists, not scientists? I would rephrase that. So artists and scientists. I mean, you know, there is a, I mean, you could see it as a, you know, layers of an onion, you know, maybe at the heart of all this is science. And once you've got that nailed down and they've got the visual perception science and the rigor of the rights and wrongs, that's your basis. But then on the outside, you've got that extra fingertip sensibility where there is room for creative interpretation. There is room for remembering that people are humans and you need sometimes to like things and to have that emotional extraction. Um, You know, and I think, you know, coronavirus, if we would just think about this as a topic, there's a time and place for this to be very scientific, for it to be very, you know, sober and and factual, because the people who need this information need to respond to actual numbers and, and correct trends. But then there's also other aspects that need to be emotional to convince people to to, to stay at home, to convince people this is not just a little bit of flu, you know. So there's a time and place to, to pull both these levers, and I think part of the skill set is know when is knowing when to go down one route or, or the other, and maybe sometimes the, the, the pair can work collect you know collectively. You might start off a piece of work that is to begin with quite emotive to get people's attention to make them feel something, and then you turn it into a much more factual portrayal, uh, more precision, more you know more dashboardy in in style. So to dovetail on that, you know, you mentioned coronavirus. Obviously, the state of things today is different than it has ever been before. What does that mean for data visualization and the role that DataViz has been playing, the role that it could or should play? What's your perspective there? Yeah, it is an interesting state that we're in. Um, I mean, first and foremost, the subject has never been more high profile. As a as a as a necessity for governments for health professionals to communicate to the world to the populations, and again going back to the audience, you know they're having to reach populations that that don't understand log scales and epidemiology right the way through to people who do not understand either of those things. So I, I don't think it's ever been more high profile. I don't think there's ever been greater demonstrations of the best of this field. And also usefully for us as teachers, you know, the, the bad stuff as well. You know, don't do this, do that. Um, but then we've got on the other side of the things, the harsh economic reality of a prolonged downturn now. And 
if we think about this in the context of businesses and organizations, does this become a luxury spend item that is most immediately pushed aside because there's a survival instinct kicks in? Um, or do organizations like, I think is always the mantra, you advertise most when you're on the down downturn, when you, your fortunes are in, in favor. So you would hope, and we would hope, so because it's, you know, it's... <laughs> It's um, it's our world that this would still be something that's um, economically of interest to organisations, and it helps that to make the argument we've got these case studies around the world to say here's the value of this thing. Um, who knows? I mean, the only you know comparable time would be a decade ago. I guess when we both kind of tiptoed into this world on the back of that financial crisis. Um, who knows? But. Well, and the different levels, right? Because the one that you and I are most impacted by is L and D budgets. Learning and development gets annihilated. Outsourcing, because, yeah, yeah, because people are focused on other things. But the next and the skip, which is scary in and of itself, but that's fine. You know, people can self learn. We'll figure it out. the The next and scarier level of that is they decide no, actually. People who do data visualization, we don't have you know, budget for them, or you know, we're cutting it down to such a core right. team that we can't do that anymore. And that's the scary piece. But I think one potential, maybe good direction that if there continues to be economic downturn and shrinking in these ways is maybe it just means there aren't specific teams in the way that there are, but that data visualization becomes even more of everyone's role. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think. The constant for all this is there isn't less data. There isn't less appetite to know what that data is telling us and, and, and anyone else. And hopefully the momentum of the last 10 years embedding this into the into the organizational structure. I mean, I don't know about your view on this, Cole, but when I was getting into this 10 years ago, I suspected that by now, in the future, we would have lots of specialist data viz functions. And I don't necessarily think mm -hmm. that's happened in so much as it's actually this is a skill set that more and more people are expected to have yep. as a literacy alongside the other things that they do in their day jobs. So that does mean that we've got a wider base, a wider sort of base in this pyramid of the field that um, that still needs professional development, that still needs supporting, that still Absolutely. needs to to function. So yeah, I, I guess it's it I, I kind of sway between a positive outlook and a negative outlook from from day to day, but you know, hopefully um, this thing will, you know, will, will still be important. And hopefully it's, you know, only a, a year or so that there might be a little bit of disruption, a little bit of interruption to this this momentum that we've seen over the last 10 years. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. But, you know, let's say there's, there's never been a bigger audience and a group of practitioners out there interested in this thing. So let's see. All right, let's totally shift topics here and get into something bigger, I think, right? Because you talked about the little visualization design, but you more recently... Oh, and actually one question on that was, are mm. you still doing it? Because I haven't seen... I was curious. Yes, it's just sheer laziness. <laughs> uh, it's, when when something it, inspires, right? That's right. It's, um, as you know yourself, you know, blogging is a hard discipline to keep going. And after been doing it for 10 years, it's... I find it ever harder to find time to do that alongside working, you know, unless you call that working as well. Um, so yeah, it's something that I do need to, to resurrect because it's not that the little design features are not out there. They're still out there. 
and I've got a huge bookmark library of future episodes. But yeah, I just need to get the momentum back. Well, maybe one of the reasons you haven't had time is because of the newer series that you've been working on, Explore, Explain. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about this. Yeah, so I guess I'm now embarking on being some sort of YouTuber, some influencer. I love it. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, going back to the the discussions we've had about, you know, teaching the subjects and about decision-making, little things, you know, I I am obsessed by the, the notion of process and about how you deconstruct this chaotic complex endeavor into into a sequence of decision making moments and and so this is what I write about in the book this is how I structure the training course and the the articles and the pieces that I'm always most keen to read are people's process narratives the, you know the backstory to their works and I just love the 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 rationale and the the mistakes that people make and the things that they've kind of traded off and the compromises. And so I thought, well, one of the, the most interesting ways to perhaps do this is just to have conversations with people rather than get them to write it down and read. Let's have a chat about these things. So yeah, the the fundamental essence of this new podcast and video series is interviewing a designer about one, usually, or at most perhaps a pair of companion works to get that backstory and to give them and their work a, a platform to to go through all these hidden thought processes because you you see this final work and this is just the tip of the iceberg and you don't see all this work that's gone below the surface and uh, you know it it's it's literally not about me it's simply to say i want to ask you questions to give you the, the platform to celebrate your work and your process and i want to focus on different types of work you know dig, uh, interactive statics people in journalism, people not in journalism, people who are known, people who are emerging. I want to make it, you know, a a very diverse series. And yeah, so it's a departure for me, trying out podcasting. Yeah, how are you liking it? tremendously hard work. So I respect those of you who have done this for the amount of time that you've done this. Um, Editing's hard, post-production's hard, but I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I've just enjoyed the chats with people. Uh, And it just feels like I'm sat in a pub. By the way, I'm not always in a pub. I should make that clear. Um, <laughs> it sounds like it, but yeah, I feel like it feels like I'm chats, chatting with a mate in a pub, and they're just talking through how they did what they did. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's something that I've launched. I, I started it before lockdown, so it's not a lockdown reactionary podcast that um, you do see a, quite a lot of uh, podcasts popping up now. But this is something that I started interviewing people in January, February, and then it just got round to releasing the the episodes now. So yeah. It's, uh, it's been, What's uh, been your favorite? Really what have been some of your favorites so far from the conversations? Well, I mean, it's it's literally the case that every single episode has revealed something new to me, highlights that I never thought about the things that people challenge. But I, I guess if we pick on the on the topic of COVID, I interviewed John Byrne Murdoch about his work on the Financial Times coronavirus tracker, and it was fascinating to hear about you know the the persistence that he puts in. Or he, he has put it. I think they've they've kind of got a routine going after that. But in the early days when new countries were emerging, the persistence that he put in to, to pick up the phone, to get contacts with people on the ground, correspondents from the Financial Times, local health professionals to to get the data from all these different origins. You know, he didn't sit there with a nice, neat spreadsheet routine that was just sent to him and they just press go. He had to forage for this data. He had to find it, verify it, check it. And so 
when you see this work that is put in that's published you know in the evening uk time that's the culmination of a full day's work to do all this groundwork gathering and you don't you don't appreciate that when you see it. you just think oh well he's just got a download from a you know johns hopkins download and then run routine it's, it's not the case well, and that's when then it blows my mind when you have people ripping apart the graph. Like, yeah. no, you don't get it, right? Well, everything that goes that's into it. this, and but he what, did some really nice posts also on the their process, right? That's of right. The, we didn't just happen upon this graph and everything they went through. That's right, and you know, and he talks again about how his his responsibility with this kind of data and it weighs heavy. You know, it's about deaths, it's about cases, it's about people. It's about a very the, the the most human topic, but he's having to detach himself from that as a as a practitioner. But also, his work is not attempting to do anything other than detach yourself from that. It's about shapes. It's about measuring the success or otherwise of government uh, practices and and responses to this, this outbreak. So, one of the things that he he didn't say this in the interview, but I, I can see, as you said, from the the amount of responses to the tweets. Why don't you show this? Why don't you include that? You know, his job is to is to show effectively one thing, as I've said, how these progress lines are shaping up. If you want to know about something else to be to do with coronavirus, another chart will do that, another report will do that, but that's not the role of this thing. This is attempting to answer a different curiosity. And I think it does expose that um, impatience that we often have as as viewers and consumers where we want answers to the thing that we're interested in. Well, yeah, that might be interesting, but this can't do that job. So you're going to have to look elsewhere for an answer to that thing. And and I guess it does expose, again, this, this shared responsibility that we always have between both the creators and the consumers. And it's one thing increasing the, lit- the literacy of creators, but if you're population of people reading this don't have the same growth in their sophisticated consumption there's a disconnect there and there's a there's a difficult marriage that has to find a way to compromise and almost meet halfway well and we run into more of those scenarios where there's a mismatch because of the way information can be shared today right correct which just wasn't the case before you developed a graph and it was used for its purpose for its audience and that's right all right. Well, we will be sure to check out the Explain, Explore, uh, or everybody listening should be sure to check out Explain, Explore. We'll link to that in the show notes. And yeah, the I love the in-depth conversation on a single topic because you get a different level of insight than you get through anything else. That's right. I think let's shift now, though, to some viewer questions. We've got a bunch that have come in here. Uh, Lisa says, in your book, you mentioned one person's wow is another person's I knew that is another person's I don't care. What do you think is the most common viewer profile category? How do you get most of the viewers to wow by making the visualization simple to understand using clean design principles or by making the visualization more dramatic and memorable by adding background images, etc.? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I would imagine most people fall into the I don't care which oh, that's such a dire outlook. I know, but, but that suggests two things. Either you've not fully profiled or correctly profiled the, the needs of the audience, or it has just reached an audience that it wasn't necessarily intended for. And I think in the, you know, in the world that we now live in, it's so easy for a chart to be taken out, taken out of context and to be removed from isolation of where it was intended, and then it just flies wildly 
on the on social media and then things get taken out of context so i think that's probably the the reality i i, I do think to be honest that taking a more positive outlook i do think actually most people do sit in the wow because we've i guess we are in that age where we are still kind of catching up with people's curiosities and appetites to know something and although we've almost to a certain degree we've fixed the problem of we don't have data about that thing well we kind of do now on most things but what we've not done historically has, has bridged that last gap between the data in its raw form to something that's more communicated and I do think most people, if again, if you've correctly profiled the needs of the audience, I think most people in that scenario of exchange of information do have that have that reaction of "Wow, I've never seen it like that before," or "Never expected that before," or even "Wow, it's reinforced what I suspected, but now I now I can see it. It's you know that's good. It's given me that sense of confidence that I was on the right track, and I think that's important because not everything has to be a Hollywood moment of "Never knew that, now I do." wow, let's go and, you know, save a million dollars. A lot of it is, okay, small grain of extra knowledge, but that can still be a wow, a little mini font eight sized wow, but it's still a wow nonetheless. That's good. Question from Lucas. Assumptions about what everyone knows can be a big issue when sharing data as well. There was an example on the Storytelling with Data Forum where someone wrote GDP, assuming most people would understand that. I think many people would get it. it's an abbreviation for gross metric product, which in turn has its own definition. So questions about assumptions, right? And how yeah. how upfront or when to define, when not to define. I mean, I think again, it becomes a bit lazy to say, but if you know, if you if you do feel that everyone understands what GDP means, then why clutter your display with a you know an extra redundant glossary? Um, but if there's a small fraction of possible audiences that don't know, I think it's incumbent on us to almost to reach the least knowledgeable, the least subject aware people and and anchor our design choices around them and not be too worried if people who do know something already get told again what that thing means. So, you know, in the absence of, let's say, interactivity to say next to GDP, have a little hover event where you can hover over and it'll tell you what that is. I feel that we have to just focus on the you know, the lowest common denominator. And that's not to be negative about that, but people will not always know everything that, about the things that you are showing. And again, I think the one of the, going back to the, the work that John produced for the coronavirus tracker, the beauty of that is that although it's a complicated chart, it's a complicated subject, he brings people with him. He, mm -hmm. he explains the level to which you should be reading this. He explains why it's on a log scale and the rationale for that. And it's something that people have that repeated exposure. So night after night, you become more familiar with the reading of the chart and what it means. And you, you then develop that almost invisible literacy that you didn't ex you didn't know that you didn't have, and now you don't know that you do have. But you're looking forward to it each day, right? To see and compare to what you remember from the day before. That's right. Absolutely right. And I think, I think it's something where, as readers and viewers, we sometimes dismiss things that require effort and learning too easily. But usually, if we do invest in that, the second time becomes easier. The second time becomes quicker. The third time becomes, you know, automatic. So as long as the creator gives you that assistance, we can, again, we can we can bring audiences up to a level that perhaps they didn't expect they would have the capacity to do. 
Here's a question from Jennifer. When approaching client projects as a freelance visualization specialist, are you taking them from the very beginning through to executing the final visualization, or do you specialize in guiding clients through a specific portion of a project? I, I have done both, but I prefer the latter. I prefer the model whereby, in a sense, I'm leaving them with a legacy of understanding and a certain self-sufficiency so that they can make their own solution, they can own that solution, They've been guided by me towards what I would hope is a good solution. And hopefully if I've done my job well, I've given them a, a bit of a backstory for why that is a solution and the rationale for why I'm suggesting this is a good thing. Because that, that then means that they're more confident about the next challenge that they face. Now you could argue, isn't that me doing myself out of work to a degree, possibly? But I, I prefer the idea that I'm leaving a legacy of understanding that's more than just a okay, give me the brief and then I'll do a solution and then da-da, here it is. And I won't tell you anything about why, I'm just going to give you the solution and, and go ahead. Sometimes you have to do that because that's the nature of the of the outsourcing requirement. But usually I, I prefer the guiding people through the process and let them own the solution as well. You mentioned earlier that uh, you know we, uh, how Tufty few when first starting out a decade ago, you know these are some of the places to take inspiration because they were the the place to go. Where do you take inspiration from today? Oh, good question. Um, I think the the lazy answer is 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 everywhere, and what I mean by that is that I guess through my own journey of developing in the last decade, I've 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 learned things from unusual places, so. Let's take an example of cartoons. Well, there's something that we can learn from cartoons about the, the efficiency of communication, about the restrictions of conveying a story and um, comedy and humor in perhaps one or two frames, the distilling of a current topic into a single frame that has to be produced in you know one hour for the print cycle, um, looking at movies, and how color palettes work in movies to accentuate drama or mood, emotion. Looking at video game design in how you interact with certain features, about how even kids can know the, the basic premise of a, of a map layout and how to interact with an object to, to pick up a gun or something like that. So there's lots of little c clues that we can gain from outside of DataViz to bring into DataViz. Layout design. Um, even just things like, you know, and this is something that's, you know, very much touches on your world's core, which is, you know, stories about when we read books, you know, why has it worked for us? What's the structure? What's the yeah. plot development and the character development that's worked for us? So, you know, everything, everything that's in a, in a creative realm or a communication realm has lots of shared decision making, layout, things to leave in, things to leave out, um, dealing with constraints and context. So... You know, we can we can learn from elsewhere. And if you start off with that, it can become overwhelming because you think, well, how do I process all this? How do I give all this knowledge that I'm picking up from elsewhere at home? But I think eventually you have that confidence. Perhaps when we do start to, you know, lose the stabilizers of the tufties and the fuse, that's when you can look elsewhere and think, wow, this is all, all part of the same game. 
Andy, this has been fantastic. You've taken us through so much stuff. And it, I always say when we do these, like, I could talk forever, right? We could keep going. It feels <laughs> like the time flies by. Uh, but from, you know, curiosity to practice to all of the little decisions we make and how to learn from the good things we see with others to the deeper process evaluations and what we can learn from there. You've left us all with a ton of resources that we'll make sure we link to in the show notes. And I love this idea of finding inspiration every And it's not about being overwhelmed by that, but just taking notice of what's there and what you might draw into your own work. Where can people follow your work and what you're up to? Do you have anything upcoming that you want to let us know about? Well, I guess the the upcoming is just the ongoing production of the the episodes from the first season of Explore Explain. I I now think I'm going to do a second season. It's been commissioned by my my, uh, higher bodies. Um, and, And really, you know... As I said, I'm, I'm doing blog posts all the time. I'm doing latest developments all the time. Um, yeah, check me out on the website, on Twitter, where I'm still quite active. I think most people still are quite active on on, on the Twitter landscape. But yeah, um, you'll find me in all the usual places. Awesome. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. Any final thoughts you want to leave folks with today? I think the biggest thing, which is always something I, I try and... Um, Make clear. And I think it's something that's very important and relevant right now. You know, when we think about diversity in this field and representation in this field, this is not a subject that is the preserve of any single talent. It's not the preserve of specialists. It's not the preserve of something that is unobtainable. If I can get into this, anyone can get into this. Start from where you have an initial base. We all have some strength, whether it be data whether it be analysis, whether it be creative, whether it be technology, start from there, use that as your fundamental foundation and build from there and recognize that you will have weaknesses, you will have shortcomings. A lot of those can be compromised on, a lot of those can be developed, a lot of those can be developed through practice and fresh thinking, but we've all got a role to play in this subject. There should be nobody left out of the equation. So the field is improving in its diversity. It's a million miles away from where it should be. And I think we've all got a role to play to to help bring people into this that are not currently represented. Awesome. Andy, I hope we're able to get together in a pub again soon. Thank you very much for joining me here today. Thank you. And thanks everyone who's tuned in, both in the live and in the future recording. Yes. Thanks, everyone.